When you ask that question, uh, you know, think about the, the relevance of the resurrection in the, the, the life of a believer, I can't help but think of, of what Paul says in Romans 6. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, it's a well-known baptism passage, but then he goes on to, to talk about the relevance of the resurrection. He says, we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So because of the resurrection, we can literally live a new life that's different, you know, uh, spiritually different from the life that we lived before we trusted in Christ. And, and uh, you know, Paul says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Hey, and welcome to the All Things All People podcast. I'm joined here with Josh Cribb and Ben Cole. Gentlemen, glad to have you here on another intro to one of the shows. For, uh-huh. Yeah, for our, our first two-time guest, uh, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, Dr. Kostenberger. Uh, so if you've been following the show for any length of time at all, um, actually, I suppose that's not true for any length of time at all. You would have had to have been following the show somewhat recently because he was on in December okay. for our uh, Christmas episode. And this time around, we got to have a discussion about the final days of Jesus, what actually Holy Week might have looked like. And Ben, right before we press record, you were actually just asking uh, how, how it went. Um, because we actually recorded it today. We're recording intros right after mm-hmm. uh, episodes as best as we can now. But uh, Doc, Dr. Kostenberger is the man. He was super cool. Um, obviously, the first guest that I've had that, you know, we have any sort of rapport at all, other than Seth, I suppose, because we know Seth personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's very, very, very cool. Very, very laid back. Uh, you know, he's Austrian. Mm-hmm. And so... It's kind of like, uh, I remember when I was talking to Mike Bird, I brought up Dr. Kostenberger and Mike Bird kind of rang his bell a little bit because he said, because uh, you guys remember how how much of a sense of humor Mike mm-hmm. Bird had. Yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah, he's pretty <laughs> pretty funny. Um, pretty much, was it, what did he say he liked chilies? Or, uh, uh, at Chili's and Applebee's. No, I thought it was Popeyes. No, it was Chili's or Applebee's because he's a man after my own heart. Yeah. Was it? He might have mentioned Popeyes. Something like the rice or something from Popeyes. Or something? That's what it was. Yeah, yeah he yeah, likes yeah, the jambalaya yeah, from yeah, Popeyes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, so Josh is a big. Um, he's pretty basic when it comes to his restaurant you choices. You don't have to put that out there. And uh, <laughs> and so Mike Bird uh, was was one who resonated with him, but Cold really Cold hilarious Cold. guy. <laughs> really hilarious guy. When I mentioned that Dr. Kostenberger didn't include any jokes. In, he, in his in his books, like Mike does, uh, Doctor Bird's explanation was was because he's Austrian, and uh, even though he doesn't have the richest sense of humor, I think you're going to be blessed by the conversation. Um, it, he might not have the richest sense of humor, but he has a rich understanding and love for the Word, um, understanding of of Johannin theology, which is the study of the Gospel of John and John in in, in general and in his writings. And it bleeds through in our conversation today while we talk about the events uh, Palm Sunday through uh, Easter. And gentlemen, we actually talk about the descension of Jesus into Sheol, mm. which is a, yeah, which is one of my favorite topics. And so uh, one and one that we get questions on all the time. So make sure 
to check out his book, The Final Days of Jesus. It's linked into the show notes, uh, as well as he's written uh, probably hundreds of books in my estimation. Uh, make sure to check all of those out and then go give us a follow on Instagram, allthings.allpeople. On Instagram, if you have any questions for a future crew episode with uh, these two gentlemen joining me, sometimes we'll go through questions and discussion. Make sure to hit those at Jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org. But gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I'm ready uh, for everybody to go ahead and give it a listen for uh, our Christian thinker for the week, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Hey, I know what you're thinking. You are expecting (laughs) the uh, loud, bass-driven music that goes before an interview, but the boys just let me know that we forgot to mention something important. So gentlemen, thank thank you for pointing this out. April 5th is a big day in the life of all things all people um and it is our first pop-up shop boys let's give it up for the pop-up shop okay so pop-up shop what does this mean we are gonna have uh merchandise specifically some some crew neck sweatshirts and some t-shirts just for you and it's only going to be available for two weeks starting on monday april 5th so go ahead and write it in calendar Give yourself a reminder on your your phone. Uh, tell your friends all of that, and it's going to be high quality merch for you to purchase and for you to uh, help the brand out with the "Think Like a Christian" mantra that we're putting out there. So make sure to check that out. April fifth. Don't forget, we certainly won't let you as long as these boys keep keep reminding me. You think I you think I was in charge of this thing or something? <laughs> okay, but so now. Our Christian thinker for the week, Dr. Andres Kostenberger. My next guest is research professor of New Testament and biblical theology and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is also the founder of Biblical Foundations, an organization devoted to encouraging a return to the biblical foundations in the home, the church, and society. Uh, He's the author of many important commentaries and books, including the forthcoming Signs of the Messiah, Introduction to John's Gospel, the information for that uh, can be found in the notes of this show. And especially important today, if all of this sounds somewhat familiar to you, is that he is the first two-time guest on the All Things All People podcast. Uh, came once uh, once before to discuss Christmas, and now here today to discuss what Holy Week would have actually looked like is Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Dr. Kostenberger, thank you so much for giving me some of your time yet again. Uh, thanks so much, Jeremy, for having me back. It's a privilege. Yeah, well, uh, today we're going to discuss Holy Week, and we're going to discuss uh, the week that this this episode is actually being published in the midst of, and we'll be pointing towards not just the Gospels, but also to your work, The Final Days of Jesus, the most important week of the most important person who ever lived, um, and uh, it somewhat reflects our last conversation, which many listeners might be familiar with, which was geared towards Christmas and the events of the the birth of Christ in the first week and even couple years of Jesus. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm so excited. Um, you know, one thing I think most people who don't know as much about you that I do, um, mm-hmm. is that you are, are not, uh, first from the United States. Um, uh, you, you were from Austria. Uh, 
I, I've never made it to Austria, not yet. Uh, is there a significant difference in how uh, Europeans and Americans celebrate Easter, uh, not Easter, uh, the holidays in general, but specifically Easter? Sure. Yes. Yeah. As you might imagine, uh, you know, growing up in Austria and Vienna and, you know, uh, speaking German and uh, growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there was certainly, uh, you know, traditions, uh, religious and otherwise, that are similar, but you know, there's there, there's some 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 differences as well. Uh, I remember um, often going to the, uh, the I think it was 14 Stations of the Cross mm-hmm. uh, in the in the church near our home, and uh, and just kind of commemorating uh, the you know the so-called Via Dolorosa, the uh, the, the the way uh, the Roman Catholics kind of reenact almost the. Uh, uh, the the final steps of, of of Jesus on his way to the cross and and so yes it was meaningful to me uh, I never really understood the meaning of a cross at the time I was not a believer as a, as a teenager I only became a Christian uh, you know in my early twenties uh, in college but uh, it it still gave me a bit of a background at least in terms of you know the uh, the crucifixion and and the suffering and the, the the pain that Jesus endured so that definitely mm-hmm. kind of left an impression on me a little bit like you know the passion of the christ movie mm-hmm. uh, which focuses heavily on on that aspect of of Jesus life and i think more recently uh, the resurrection <laughs> has mm-hmm. become a lot more important to me as well now that i understand from scripture why it is that Jesus had to die and and uh you know since i i uh, put my trust in christ for salvation as well yeah coming from a background where you were so immersed in roman catholicism and now teaching in southern baptist institutions and i'm a i'm a pastor at a southern baptist church um baptists and many evangelical protestants often might be accused somewhat appropriately of 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 um how might you say you know not having as much of a rich tradition in so far as how we celebrate these holidays. Uh, how do you, how do you even personally um, observe something like Easter without getting too much into the ritualism of a Roman Catholicism without lose, leaving everything behind as you and I both know, oftentimes Protestants fall victim to. You know, Jeremy, that's another great question. I think it's a good segue into talking about the final days of Jesus, yeah. because that was a big reason why Justin Taylor uh, initially uh, at Crossway encouraged me uh, to partner with him in, in, in preparing this book. It was not so much, you know, to to uh, to write another publication. It was really uh, meant to be a tool, especially for families, uh, to uh, to have a biblical uh understanding of 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 the death and burial and resurrection of christ and and to have a tool that uh we reproduce the uh the uh esv uh you know relevant texts uh of the uh the events leading up to the crucifixion starting with the the uh palm sunday Mm -hmm. uh and then moving through the week and so the idea is that someone just kind of like with Advent, uh, in, in the case of Christmas, to, to basically have a better understanding day by day what happened uh, and uh, to uh, basically prepare your heart for Good Friday, 
and then Easter Sunday. And so I would recommend this as a tool for families, especially even uh, churches or maybe Sunday school classes or life groups, you know, to... Uh, uh, this is this is not a replacement of scripture. Right. Uh, it's basically just a guide uh, through the week that hopefully people find helpful to mm. enter more deeply into both what Jesus went through and then also what it means for us personally. Yeah. And so many people, uh, when this episode's going live, will have celebrated Palm Sunday just yesterday. And yeah. I know growing up, I grew up uh, in a Lutheran church. And so somewhat similar to your upbringing, um, mm -hmm. where, where we would have had palm fronds and uh, even knowing too that um, I'm sure growing up Catholic, uh, you were around churches where they would even use the palm fronds from Palm Sunday to make the ashes for Ash Wednesday. And I grew up in that that circle. Mm -hmm. So many of our listeners likely waved palm fronds in their church yesterday. And as you said, segueing into uh, mm -hmm. this conversation about Easter, coming out of that, from your perspective as a biblical expert, as somebody who especially has worked in uh, Johannine theology, the study of, of mm -hmm. John and what his writings, but what is the most important thing to understand for our listeners about Palm Sunday and the, the triumphal entry in these words that we sing even now as so many contemporary songs are named Hosanna, uh, what would it likely have meant this event, this triumphal entry and the name Hosanna being called out? Yes, that's a great place to start. Uh, now, first for our listeners, of course, uh, you can find the account of the uh, triumphal entry as it's commonly called of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, it's recorded in all four Gospels mm -hmm. because it's that central to the biblical story, especially in Passion Week uh, in, in Matthew chapter 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, uh, and John 12. It's really, you know, in many ways, the well, it's the first major event in the, mm -hmm. in the, the final week uh, of Jesus. And I think probably the most important thing to understand about Palm Sunday is that uh, those crowds who were excited to welcome Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, you know, to wave those palm branches mm -hmm. that they would probably have gotten from the nearby city of Jericho, mm -hmm. which was also known as the city of palms, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, very interesting. Uh, so those crowds that would have hailed Jesus as the king of Israel, uh, what they really meant by that is they, they, they viewed him as a sort of political uh, leader, uh, for the most part, who would have uh, been expected or they would have hoped that he would overthrow the Romans uh, who were occupying Palestine at that time and that he would restore Jewish independence, which the Jews actually had enjoyed for about a century during the so-called Maccabean period. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, some of those same people who waved palm branches on Palm Sunday and cried Hosanna, uh, as you mentioned, which in Hebrew means uh, Lord save or, or rescue, uh, as in uh, Psalm 110, for example, where it continues, uh, you know, uh, blessed is, is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, some of those very same people who cried Hosanna, uh, only a few short days later were the, the ones who cried crucify, crucify, uh, which shows how, how fickle crowds can be. So really, there's a deep irony here. Uh, when the crowds acclaimed Jesus, that was really based on, uh, on a misunderstanding of who Jesus was. Right. 
Um, at the same time, I think there's a second related component uh, in, in, in entering the way Jesus did, you know, mm-hmm. humble and, and humility, uh, mounted on a, on a donkey, not on a war horse mm-hmm. or, you know, some, something more dignified or royal. Uh, he, he modeled a different kind of kingship, a different kind of Messiah in fulfillment of, of two things. One is the prophecy of Zechariah, mm-hmm. uh, chapter 9, verse 9, uh, which says that, uh, that uh, the Messiah would uh, enter Jerusalem humbly. And the second passage is in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 32 to 40, uh, Solomon entering the city of Jerusalem in exactly the same manner, uh, you know, humbly mounted on a donkey, uh, you know, about a thousand years earlier. So here we see Jesus as the greater son of David, mm-hmm. which of course Solomon was the literal son of David. Uh, so Jesus fulfilling this, this royal uh, messianic prophecy, uh, while at the same time the crowds fail to understand who Jesus truly is. And we see that in the in the New Testament, very few people, uh, if anyone, understood who Jesus right. was prior to the crucifixion. And so I think there's a lesson for us there today as well, that that uh, many of us today who basically reenact Palm Sunday mm-hmm. uh, are maybe oblivious, you know, to the fact that when the crowds waved those palm branches, it was in part based on the misunderstanding. I mean, they had yeah. the right idea, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't really understand who Jesus was. Yeah, I think that, and I and I vaguely remember us talking about this, uh, this even when we were talking about Christmas. But do you feel like that even mm-hmm. for the, and I say for the lay Christian, we'll say that. And even a cursory, a basic understanding of what happened in what we might call the intertestamental period would yeah. be vastly beneficial in understanding something, of course, Christmas and Easter, but because you even reference that to understand the people yeah. who were on the roadside cheering out Hosanna, yeah. you would have had to have understand to a certain degree, the Maccabean years, John Hyrcanus, mm-hmm. the Pharisees yeah. and the Sadducees. Um, is that something that even with your students at Midwestern that you expect of them to, to, to truly be able to understand the gospel. Yeah. I think that's a great example that we need to basically work on our, you know, biblical literacy, if you will, mm-hmm. to understand uh, both biblical and extra biblical, I would say both. And, and, and like you said, I mentioned the Maccabean period, which was this period that, that started with the desecration of the temple by, uh, you know, a, a Syrian Greek uh, ruler, uh, you know, Antiochus of, Tiffany's the fourth. They, yeah. He called himself the glorious one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he sacrificed the pig on the altar in, in Jerusalem in, in, I think, 168 BC. And of course, that was deeply offensive to the Jews, so much so that uh, they rebelled against uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the Greeks. And, and miraculously, one might almost say they were able to, uh, they were vastly, you know, out, outnumbered, but they, they somehow were able through, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare in the mountains and so forth to to overthrow the, the yoke uh, of, of, of the Greeks. And so then for, uh, you know, between 165 and 63 BC, when the Roman general Pompey came in, so for... Uh, almost exactly a century, they were basically free from uh, from uh, oppression from foreign rulers. But then the Romans, you know, they, they ran a, a pretty, they ran the country with pretty iron fists. And, uh, you know, they 
they kept the, the, the Jews on, on, on a fairly short leash. And we see that even in the, the proceeding around Jesus's trial, where you see the, the very delicate relationship uh, between uneasy relationship between uh, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, the, mm-hmm. the Jewish highest court, under uh, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and, and Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time. And, uh, you know, when the, when the, the Roman governor wasn't uh, going to uh, do what they wanted, them, uh, wanted him to do, they, they, they basically, you know, issued that veiled threat. If, if you don't give in, you know, you're no friend of Caesar. And yeah. so trying to put some pressure on him. So understanding the politics, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. I think is very helpful in understanding uh, the trial of Jesus in particular, and, you know, even the reason why he ended up being crucified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what we have is essentially, um, I think maybe it might be lost on some time, the, the, the modern day readers, but we have two power struggles here. We have uh, the Jews who were upset at Jesus's claims yeah. to lordship, Messiah, um, and, and even divinity. And then, like you alluded to, um, the Romans who would have been incensed at the idea that somebody might call themselves a king. And uh, I think even in that triumphal entry uh, narrative, we, we lose sight sometimes when we're ra- waving our, our palm friends with the best of intentions, which I, I love that tradition. But, um, but yeah, I, I, what I'm hearing you say is we need to remember the context in which this would have happened. The Romans would have looked at this and been furious and the Sanhedrin yep. and the Pharisees would have looked at this and, and been furious, you know? Absolutely, Jaron. If I may add one more thing, which is that as important the extra-biblical period or the intertestamental period is, uh, it's also helpful to understand the Old Testament background. And so, uh, you know, I'm working on a biblical theology right now, and I'm, I'm going to teach a seminar at Midwestern on that in the fall. Mm. And so the whole idea of, of uh, in this case, I mentioned Zechariah 9.9, I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Psalm uh, 118. So, mm-hmm. so there's also this very important, uh, you could even say like, tapestry of, of Old Testament prophecy that is so mm-hmm. vital to understand as some sort of matrix right for Jesus so he's 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 basically playing the part of a Messiah uh, the way the prophets predicted it and uh, whether or not uh, people at the time always understood it yeah uh, but certainly for the modern reader right for you and me uh, it's vital to understand you mm-hmm. know in order to understand who Jesus truly was uh, what those Old Testament predictions were that he was in the process of fulfilling. Yeah. And as rich as the tradition surrounding Palm Sunday, and as we've mentioned a few times, the intertestamental context, the Old Testament context that you bring up, um, we get to what we might call Maundy Thursday, which between Sunday and Thursday, uh, we don't have as much record of what Jesus would have been doing, um, but he would have probably been doing what he'd been doing for three years at this point, teaching itinerantly, uh, going right. from place to place. But Monday Thursday uh, brings us to Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples hours before his arrest. And it sets the tone really for the ensuing events that we might call Good Friday. Um, so in this, this scene, in this narrative, and, and I use words like that, but it's important to pause and reflect this, this actually happened 2000 years ago, but uh, what should Christian readers understand about Passover to get a fuller understanding of its significance in the passion narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Just to to underscore that, uh, there's not 
that much happening between uh, Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then, uh, you know, Thursday uh, and Thursday evening, the Passover would have been celebrated. And so, again, looking at our, our book at the final days of Jesus, really, most of the pages are taken up, you know, with yeah. with really the last two days, uh, Thursday and Friday, mm -hmm. uh, the Passover, the night of the crucifixion, prior to the crucifixion and then the crucifixion itself. Uh, Passover, of course, uh, derives from the Exodus, where the death angel uh, literally passed over the, the Israelite households and, uh, you know, the firstborn uh, while striking the Egyptians. He was the, the, the greatest and the climactic, uh, you know, uh, one of the ten plagues. And, uh, of course, uh, what God had commanded the Israelites to do to escape death. Uh, death is, is, is to smear uh, the, uh, the blood of, of, of a lamb on their doorposts. And uh, listeners, if they're interested, they could read up on that story mm -hmm. in, in, in the book of Exodus chapter 12. Um, and of course, that then uh, was not just a one-time event. It, ever since, uh, Israelites were commanded to celebrate the Passover uh, annually uh, every year to remember uh, God's mighty deliverance from from bondage in Egypt uh, the, on the eve of the Exodus, because Moses uh, led the Israelites out of Egypt, you know, and then the Red Sea part and so forth the very uh, next day. Uh, now, Passover in turn in the Jewish festival cycle was part of the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. So that made it even more significant. It was not just a one-day festival. It was really a seven-day festival, and Passover came toward the end of that. So, uh, and you see that in the scriptures as well, where you sometimes have Passover mentioned, you know, in the context of that uh, week-long festival, which makes sense, you know, when Jews were uh, commanded to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, they didn't come for just one meal, mm -hmm. they came for the whole week of Passover, uh, even though it can be a little confusing sometimes because there's places in scripture in the Passion narrative where Passover is mentioned uh, as, you know, the, the, the Passover meal. Mm -hmm. There's other places where it's mentioned uh, to refer to the whole week of, you know, what what also might be called, uh, you know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, uh, you know, uh, listeners have to be careful there to understand in, in which of those two senses the word Passover is is used in scripture, or it could be a little bit confusing. So uh, during the last week of Jesus' life, as, 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 as you know, Passover was celebrated on Thursday evening, which was the night before uh, his crucifixion on Friday uh, noon till afternoon. Um, and incidentally, the day before Passover, it's also mentioned in scripture, was called the day of preparation, uh, where Jesus' followers uh, went and made all the preparations for the meal and the celebration, you know, the, 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 um, the time that the Israelites commemorated the God's mighty deliverance at the Exodus, kind of like today we might go grocery shopping or make reservations at a restaurant before a major holiday, you know, such as Easter. Um, and I, I would add for Christians, of course, uh, the, uh, the Last Supper, uh, the final Passover Jesus ate with his disciples has great added significance in that it is also the first Lord's Supper that mm -hmm. um, marks Jesus' establishment of a new covenant 
in his body and in his blood. Uh, as you know, uh, the scripture says that Jesus was the lamb of God. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the lamb provided by God. So he died for the sins of the world uh, in the place of each one of us. So um, that we could be mightily delivered spiritually, you know, in the ultimate exodus from, uh, from our sin and be reconciled to God and spend eternity with him if we uh, put our trust in Jesus, if we repent of our sins. And then just like the Israelites were commanded to celebrate Passover every year in remembrance of, of, of God's mighty deliverance at the Exodus. So, so as Jesus followers, we're commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly uh, in remembrance of, of God's mighty deliverance uh, through Jesus' death on the cross. And so uh, Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 19 says, do this in remembrance of me. Um, and then later, uh, Paul repeats that in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and uh, of course, we in, in final days of Jesus uh, talk about that in, in some depth, uh, pages 60 and 61, if anybody wants to uh, get an even fuller mm -hmm. you know, presentation of, of, of what we're talking about here. It's interesting, I just posted uh, uh, you know, something on, on, on my LinkedIn page about the final days of Jesus. And, and I got one response where I said, you know, I said, Easter is coming. And somebody said, well, no, uh, Passover is coming. <laughs> right. And I just had to laugh because I understand that even Jewish people today, right, non-Messianic Jews celebrate the Passover. Right. Um, and so we have entered as Christians into that tradition. But in addition, for us, the final Passover Jesus celebrated with his followers was also the first Lord's Supper, which uh, commemorates the new covenant that Jesus made with the church. Yeah. And for, for, for listeners who maybe this is, uh, even if it's not new to them, but this is one of the first times they've ever really sat and just thought about the events surrounding Easter when when you describe Passover and the significance of it to first century Jews and therefore us, um, there's the beginnings of the allusions to the blood of the lamb, to the passing over of the Israelites. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of when you and I had the privilege of talking about Christmas is we talked about typology and we talked about how uh, when when Mary and Joseph took Jesus into Egypt um, that in a sense, he was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, it was a type of Moses, you know, or Moses yeah. was really a type of Christ, um, for, for readers when they, when they see this and they see sort of the events of Holy week resembling the events of the old Testament in this instance, the Passover, what would you say then to somebody who's, who is asking, why is it so similar? Did God have a greater plan even way back in, in Egypt during the mm -hmm. Passover? Was God thinking forward to the events of the first century and what he would end up doing in Easter? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think, uh, you know, Richard Hayes, who's a, a Duke, um, brilliant scholar, uh, you know, he wrote a, a, just a fascinating book called Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, which I, I greatly appreciate, you know, he talks about that the Old Testament in many ways gives us some sort of a spiritual vocabulary, uh, you know, some, some concepts that help us understand what happened when Jesus came. And, and so I think that's what, what you've just articulated in essence, that we were not given the New Testament in the vacuum, 
-hmm. you know, in so many ways, uh, uh, we can read the Old Testament and we can, it, it, it opens up our understanding yes. of, 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 of what Jesus did. And as you mentioned, you know, things such as, you know, the, the slaughter of the lamb and the exodus and, and uh, the old covenant and, uh, you know, so forth. So really, uh, reading the Old Testament is a great preparation preparation for understanding the new and uh you know uh one of the church fathers i think you know said that that in many ways the uh the the new testament is is, is explained by the old and the old in turn prepares for the new um so it's a it's a great example of how we really need both testaments and yeah. and and we're greatly benefiting like we said earlier you know uh, yeah. understanding some of the old testament background yeah and, and in this instance now of, of, of taking a, a closer look at the Passover meal Jesus would have celebrated with his disciples, yep. what, we, what we now call the Last Supper, there's a, there's a couple instances there that I just feel like I would be foolish for not asking someone like you, who I know has spent so much time in the Gospel of John. Uh, that was where I think, yeah. that was where I, I first encountered your work was studying the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. And there's this, yeah. there's this moment where they're sitting together in this meal and we are told that judas is the one who is going to betray jesus and yeah. just the way that john tells this this story leads us to a couple questions because the way he wrote it was such that there was this intimate moment where jesus spoke to the disciple whom he loved who we of course always assume is john and told him that the one who i give this piece of bread to uh, is the one who would betray me. And I've heard people ask this all the time and I have my yeah. own answers, but I'd love to hear yours yeah. is how would Judas not have heard Jesus's yeah. words to, to John yeah. um, in this, in this intimate setting? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a great question. You know, and I mean, when you look at the gospel's portrait of the disciples, it seems like they were not always the most perceptive, <laughs> Yeah, you know, to pick up on, on, on certain, I mean, they're, pretty intransigent at times. So it's like in the gospels, you read early on that Judas was the one who was going to betray Jesus. You see at the, the anointing of Jesus, right? The earlier, uh, how Judas uh, vehemently objected and said, you know, this money could have been given to the poor. And, and, and the way John tells the story that it, it kind of, again, revealed already earlier, Judas mm -hmm. kind of antagonism and his worldly mindset, you know, he, he didn't appreciate the significance of the fact Jesus was about to die. And this woman was essentially anointing him for burial. And so he was just concerned about a little more money in the money back, which he could then conveniently help himself to, you know, yeah. but all of that was lost incredibly on the disciples. And even as late as at that point, just shortly before uh, Judas actually did betray Jesus, it seems like they had, they had no clue mm -hmm. that Jesus, uh, that, 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 you know, Judas was a traitor. So um, in the, when it comes to the seating arrangement at the, at the last supper, you know, we're not greatly helped by Leonardo uh, da Vinci's famous right. <laughs> painting of that, of that event. Um, so we shouldn't, we need to erase it from our mind's eye. We, in, in, in the final days of Jesus, we actually have a graphic at some mm -hmm. point depicting the, you know, the likely seating arrangement. So at the head table, uh, you know, would have been Jesus, 
uh, kind of like at a wedding, you know, where you have a head table. Uh, so he was would be easily visible. He is the host of the Last Supper, would have uh, said the blessing and, you know, would have kind of led kind of like uh, in Jewish households, the the head of a household would mm-hmm. would lead the family through the the different courses of the meal, uh, and he would be would have been flanked by the apostle John on one side and and Judas on the other. Uh, incredibly, right, the two seats of honor. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, just goes to show how Jesus uh, loved Judas, despite of what he was about to do. You know, just living out, you know, what he said, love your enemies, just mm-hmm. very moving. And uh, and Peter would have been a little further away, uh, as we've seen in, in John 13 and in the uh, narrative there. And the other disciples as well, probably in the, some on the left, some on the right. And, uh, you know, again, I think that the posture was probably not that everybody sat on a chair around a table, but it was more like people were reclining. You know, they're kind of leaning to their side, leaning on their elbow and then eating with the other hand. So, uh, you know, the way to picture that is is that the meal was probably in several courses and would have lasted quite a while. So just like, you know, you think of Thanksgiving, right? Uh, you know, there would have been plenty of conversation uh, and, you know, people might have been talking with the person beside them or even across the room, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think when when Jesus was talking to John on his one side, Judas might have been talking to someone else or or been, you know, too far away to, to hear if maybe Jesus kept his voice down when he mm-hmm. when he talked to John. Um, so it's kind of a real life, you know, setting, you know, mm-hmm. in a meal where people are just talking Um yeah. And uh, it's just uh, fascinating to think about uh, just how momentous of an occasion it was. And yet, in many ways, it was just kind of like an ordinary meal Jesus would have had. Right. One last, you know, festive meal with his followers, you know, before mm-hmm. he was going to be crucified. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Leonardo da Vinci. And of course, when most of us think the Last Supper, when we hear those words, we think of uh, you know, those words are synonymous with this painting that all of us, yeah. every listener probably can picture that. And what, you know, what I've known to be true. And of course I probably learned it from reading one of your books, but, uh, what many listeners have never really stopped to think about is that, um, as studious of an, of an artist, Da Vinci was, he mm-hmm. might not have been such the biblicist because, it, that wouldn't yeah. have been the case at all. And now we have a picture of Judas, you know, with a knife behind his back and all of these things, because that's what's in that, what the, that's what's in that painting. But what, you know, what, what listeners are hearing from you now is that in first century Israel, um, and I've heard it, I've heard it explained the way that you just said, I've heard some say that they might've been sitting more on a, at a round table on the ground and in mm. all of these things. But no matter what your interpretation is, unfortunately, Da Vinci's painting is not is not a interpretation, a hermeneutic tool. Yeah, it's really interesting that, uh, you know, my understanding is that uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, it was quite common that, uh, uh, you know, artists would would depict uh, a kind of a historical scene, uh, you know, against a kind of a more contemporary background. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't even necessarily mean to imply that, that, yeah. that they th- thought, things really happened then yeah. is maybe their way of, of contemporizing, yeah. you know, it's to make it a little more, you know, easily intelligible to people who saw their painting or who, yeah. you know, saw their portrayal of an event. 
I think Da Vinci would be alarmed to find out how many people uh, <laughs> yeah. actually, you know, took that at face value because of course, right. like you said that I don't think he was a pretty intelligent guy. He, 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 right. he knew enough to, to know that that wasn't the case, but in that same moment, in that same, uh, scene, if you will, um, there's, there's another moment, including Judas where John mm -hmm. writes that it was at that moment that sa Satan entered into to Judas and and the other you know other gospel writers say it similarly uh -huh, uh -huh. what do you think that means because I I like I said I've gotten many questions of did Satan yeah. himself influence Judas possess Judas um is yeah. this just figurative language to say that he was doing the bidding of Satan what is what has been your yeah, interpretation yeah. of that yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I think the one thing that I uh, gradually as a, as a new Christian came to understand is that, you know, Satan is, is unlike God. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very encouraging to me, you know, that he is off somewhere else to tempt somebody else. He can't tempt me at the same time. Mm -hmm. He's limited, right? Yeah. Uh, he's not, um, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. I sincerely believe that, Satan thought if he could only get Jesus killed, mm. he would have won. You know, so I don't think he knew ahead of time that in the end that would actually work out to, uh, you know, in God's sovereign providence uh, for the salvation of, of all who trust in Christ and that that Jesus would be raised uh, from the dead and then be vindicated. So I think we need to understand the limitations of Satan. Of course, we also need to understand the reality of Satan, that he really does exist. Uh, we sometimes, uh, you know, treat Satan more like some sort of a, you know, a, a personification of evil, perhaps, or as a metaphor. Uh, but we believe uh, Satan is, is, was the highest angel created, but, but the highest angel, he, but then he fell into rebellion against God, wanting to be, uh, like God himself. Um, and it's interesting, especially you mentioned, uh, you know, John's portrayal of Satan entering Judas. Uh, uh, in the Gospel of John, there's no demons mentioned. There's no demon exorcism. Uh, I think the reason for that is, is that, that John wanted to show that ultimately this was a cosmic battle between God and Satan. Um, and, uh, you know, Jesus, of course, being God's instrument uh, and, and, and Satan trying to thwart uh, God's salvation purposes. And so uh, Satan entering Judas uh, means that, that uh, Satan wanted to use Judas as the human instrument by which Jesus would be betrayed and delivered over to his accusers. Just basically the, the move along the process by which Jesus would be uh, crucified. And uh, as you mentioned, it's kind of interesting that John is not the only one who mentions this. You know, when you look in, in, in the gospel of Luke, especially Luke chapter 22, verse three says, and I quote, uh, he says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And then in verse four, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So it just goes to show how the, the gospel writers are very closely aligned in that portrayal. Um, you know, just my own personal thoughts are that I, it's kind of ironic that both Satan 
and God wanting Jesus crucified, but for very, very wow. different reasons. Uh, Satan thought, you know, if, 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 if he could succeed and get Jesus killed, that would take care of, 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 of Jesus forever. Uh, of course, God uh, wanted Jesus crucified because he wanted him to make atonement for our sin and, and to die as our sinless substitute. And of course, by raising Jesus from the dead, uh, God then, uh, by bringing Jesus back to life, God then overruled the, uh, you know, the guilty verdict uh, that the Gospels make clear was basically based on the travesty of justice. Um, you know, in any case. Yeah. Well, and I think it's fascinating. Um, just even what you just said is that both God and Satan wanted Jesus crucified. And, um, and I think about, uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter. We read through uh, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, the, the C.S. Lewis's portrayal of the crucifixion as it might be is, is one of the best almost one of the best commentaries I've ever read on the, on the subject yeah. because of how well he, he portrayed it, but it does take us to this notion then of the events of, of Thursday leading to the arrest because of Judas ultimately culminate in this moment on Calvary's Hill where Jesus is crucified. And I remember reading John Stott's uh, book, the cross of Christ and having just my abs my whole world changed by how Stott handled this topic and and for a long time really zeroing in on this and saying, you know, this is this tied to the resurrection that would follow is the most important moment in all of history. And but there's so many questions surrounding it because oftentimes we, you know, those of us who grew up in the church, um, and especially those of us, yourself and myself included, who who are educated in the biblical texts can sometimes downplay some of the more mysterious aspects of this, because one of the first questions that I, I really began to wrestle with in understanding the crucifixion and the things that come along with it is, is what I found really in Paul's theology in second Corinthians five, where he wrote yeah. that Jesus, while he was on the cross became the curse while he was on the cross in, in Paul elaborates, he says, so that we might become his righteousness and really uh, theologians and, and biblicists such as yourself would, would attach words like propitiation and kenosis to these, to this verse and to the surrounding topic. But how would you explain this, uh, this uh, cosmic uh, thing that's yeah. happened on the cross uh, to a follower of Jesus who does not necessarily understand it? Yes, again, there's this important Old Testament background, right? In Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And uh, it's a passage that uh, Paul quotes in Galatians 3 uh, to uh, explain how even he himself, Paul, mm -hmm. came to understand how uh, it was not that Jesus was cursed mm -hmm. for anything he had done, but he basically bore the curse for us as our uh, sinless substitute. And so this is just so vital. Anybody who's uh, considering uh, the gospel and, and, and is trying to understand what happened on the cross, uh, which is hard for any human and finite mind to understand. So I, I agree entirely with what you're saying. There's a mystery that 
uh, you know, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians that the, the cross is really foolishness uh, to the, the unregenerate mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it was God's wisdom, you know, and so it shows again that 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 God, ha- his ways are higher than ours. And and, and in the end, if, if you're listening, you're considering uh, becoming a Christian, but you really don't understand the cross. Uh, you should uh, take heart because uh, I would say the way to go would be to trust in Christ and trust him with some of the mystery. Uh, it, 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 it's uh, beyond, you know, human logic. And I think that's what, what Paul is trying to explain there in, in, in first Corinthians. And as you mentioned in second Corinthians, then Paul makes this incredible statement that for our sake, uh, he, God made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin uh, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So uh, helpfully it acknowledges there that Jesus knew no sin. I mean, he he was not a sinner. He never committed a sin, which is just incredible to even think about. Uh, I just think of that one moment where Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, who among you can accuse me of sin? Uh, just imagine, you know, that he could actually throw down the gauntlet and, and, and be confident that nobody could, could cite any incident where they would have seen him, you know, sinning. Uh, so Jesus was sinless. And yet, you know, the way uh, Romans, uh, Paul puts it in Romans 8, he says he was born in the likeness of human flesh. So it's hard to understand you know, because we think of being human means you're a sinner, but but Jesus was born as a human being, but but he was not a sinner. So uh, theologians refer to what Paul describes here as the great exchange, which means that that Jesus, who was sinless, took our sin upon himself. So in that sense, he 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 was made to be sin. Uh, in you know, in that he took our sin upon himself, and then the second part of the verse, God could could declare us righteous on the basis of what what Jesus did for us. It's you know, in very simple terms, you know, if if, if I uh, pay my my son's parking ticket, <laughs> I am paying a debt that you know I don't owe, he does, but I'm doing it for him. So in a very basic way that's what jesus did you know among other things you know there's many ways we could uh, understand the cross but this one would be penal substitution the right. idea jesus paying the penalty for our sin now in second corinthians uh this is presented uh, as our reconciliation mm-hmm. with god uh kind of like in in romans 5 and, and so the idea is that sin ruptured our relationship with god who's holy so we're spiritually separated from God and and could no longer enjoy you know fellowship with Him. But by dying on the cross for us, Jesus also restored our our relationship with God. And and then Paul takes it even one step further in that passage. He says, "Now that we've been reconciled to God, uh, we're also reconciled to each other in the body of Christ." And even more, we're commanded to share the message and the you know, the ministry of reconciliation with unbelievers, both individually, the way Paul and the, the apostles did, and also corporately as part of, of, of the church. So mm-hmm. we have the word of reconciliation or the ministry of reconciliation, and we've ourselves, uh, mm-hmm. you know, experienced a reconciliation with God, which is 
very, very precious. You know, the yeah. Bible says we're alienated, we're estranged from God. And now we can have a close relationship with God in prayer as believers understand. And we are, in the end, going to enjoy fellowship with God in heaven forever one day. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love your explanation so much because it begins to take us from an earthly explanation uh, you know, whereas most, you know, we talk about the triumphal entry and, and the Passover, and these are, these are uh, examples, signposts of the fact that Jesus was man, he was human. But at the crucifixion, we begin to see the supernatural really, really coming front and center. And we seeing it mm-hmm. as, as Paul describes in Jesus becoming the curse and Luke's account, even of the sun going dark and, um, the tombs opening it up and in so many other things that are not explainable by our human minds. And you mentioned penal substitution. And of course there's this, um, the, the prevailing thought in Protestant Christianity is, is that Jesus saved mankind through what we would call penal substitutionary atonement. And it leads us to, of course, the, the biggest question, which is about the resurrection. But before we do just briefly, and, and I mean that because yeah. I think you and I could elaborate on this question for quite a long time, is I get questions about yeah. uh, Saturday, we'll say, uh, all the time. And yeah. I can remember as a young man yeah. growing up in Lutheran church, reciting the Apostles' Creed, where every Sunday I would say <laughs> that Christ descended to hell. And then I went to a Baptist yeah. school and we stopped saying that. And, uh, yes. and so on and so on. And, and that's even a, 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 a doctrine that I've wrestled with and studied through quite a bit. So right. um, without getting too bogged down in it, because I know it's not necessarily your yeah. purview, but what are your thoughts on, even if it's not in regards to first yeah. Peter three eighteen, where Peter writes that Jesus went into yeah. the, uh, went yeah. descended and preached to the spirits from the days of Noah who yeah. were in disobedience, yeah. but even just the simple question of, well, what was he doing on Saturday? Um, what, what right. have been your thoughts throughout that, throughout time on that issue? Yes. I think in the, in the final days of Jesus, the only thing we talk about is that, you know, this idea, uh, went on between the, the Jewish leaders and in Pilate, this little kind of back and forth about, you know, them saying, uh, you know, let's make sure we guard the tomb yeah. and, and we don't want his disciples to steal it and, and so forth, you know, kind of skirmishes, if you will. And, and Pilate said, you know, sure, do whatever you want, you know. Um, and, and, and of course, that becomes an important part of the apologetic for, uh, you know, Matthew in particular mentions this rumor that spread that the right. disciples stole the body and, and so by, by saying that there were Roman guards stationed in front of a tomb, you know, and, and also that the, the rock, you know, the, 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 that was rolled away was, was, was very, very heavy. So it, it's kind of unlikely that, that, that somebody would have just kind of rolled it away. We shouldn't think of it as just kind of a, a smaller uh, stone. But, but when it comes to the, uh, you know, the Apostles' Creed that you mentioned, I mean, like you, I, I had uh, some question there about that line in the in the creed, and and uh, in short, I I don't know that Scripture clearly states that Jesus actually went to hell on right. uh, you know on Saturday of 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 of, of the Easter weekend. Uh, I think probably the key passage that you alluded to there probably is First Peter three, where people might have gotten the idea. Uh, you know, and, and just the, the relevant passage there would simply be that he talks about uh, Christ uh, was made alive in the spirit. And then uh, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, 
and then it, it continues because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Uh, it's a very difficult passage. You kind of wonder why Peter even mentions it, you know, in this context. But uh, the way I interpret that passage, uh, I take it to mean that Jesus, after the resurrection, uh, uh, made a public declaration of his victory over Satan at the cross to a group of spirits, uh, demons who had disobeyed in the days of Noah and were therefore kept in some sort of spiritual uh, prisoner holding area. I think the background there is most likely Genesis 6, where you see that uh, prior to the flood, there were a group of, of demons, most likely who had sexual intercourse with women and, and procreated, you know, some sort of hybrid offspring, very severe uh, kind of bizarre, you know, and unique sin, which apparently resulted in very unique judgment, mm -hmm. specifically for those demons. And so the way I see it, it's not that Jesus uh, went, you know, more broadly, universally yeah. Uh, yeah. to hell, but that he uh, chose for whatever reason, I don't think we really know, to mm -hmm. proclaim his victory over Satan, specifically to those demons who sinned so egregiously, yeah. you know, in the days yeah. of the flood. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, there's good commentaries. Ramsey Michaels in the word series mm -hmm. on first Peter has an excellent detailed explanation in our uh, new Testament introduction to cradle across in the crown. In the second edition, we also have a chart and a diagram as to the mm -hmm. different views. So like you said, uh, it's a, it's not an easy issue to discuss, but yeah. uh, uh, if anything, Jesus would have done that probably early Sunday morning sure. <laughs> rather than, yeah. you know, Saturday, but yeah. be that as yeah. it may, that's yeah. maybe a, a short answer. Sure. And it's, it's certainly a rich topic, one that has uh, confounded theologians and lay Christians for now thousands of years. Um and, and as you said, there's plenty of commentaries and people who that is one of their main focuses. Um, yeah. But it's certainly for this conversation. And I would even uh, recommend to the listeners that, that that's a peripheral issue for all of yeah. Christendom, because we are humans and, and this concerned Jesus and whoever these disobedient spirits were. So the last thing before I let you go yeah. is then the resurrection. And here is an event in the resurrection that has become so commonplace, you know, um, just here, you know, in now five or six days from the time that this episode's published, many of us are going to go to church. And, and especially if we're mm -hmm. part of a, a more traditional background um, in some form or fashion, we might look at each other and say, he is risen and respond with, he is yeah. risen indeed to echo the words that Jesus's followers would have said, but what exactly then if Christ was our substitution on the cross? And I mentioned John Stott, the seminal work, in my opinion, on, on mm -hmm. uh, the soteriology that comes, the, the salvation theology that comes out of the cross. And if, and if in that moment uh, be, he became the curse so that we could become his righteousness, then in your opinion, what mm -hmm. significance does the resurrection play in the salvation of the believer and why is it that it's so important that that paul himself would say if it weren't for the resurrection he doesn't say this about the cross if it weren't for the resurrection yeah. everything we do would be a waste essentially right i mean it's a great a great question so relevant you know you think of the early christians in the book of acts and what they primarily proclaim is the resurrection of jesus mm -hmm. that was the good news uh yeah. that was uh, you know, what they wanted to broadcast, uh, herald, right, mm -hmm. uh, you know, far and wide. 
but you know, when 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 you ask that question, uh, you know, think about the the relevance of the resurrection in the 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 life of the believer. I can't help but think of of what Paul says in Romans six, mm. uh, and you know, the uh, it's a well known baptism passage. But then he goes on to to talk about the relevance of the resurrection. He says, "We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was." raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So because of the resurrection, we can literally live a new life that's different, you know, uh, spiritually different from the life that we lived before we trusted in Christ. And, and uh, you know, Paul says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him uh, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who's died has been set free from sin. So uh, here we see that before we trusted Christ and, you know, those of us who became Christians at a little bit uh, you know, uh, older age, we we remember the difference that that made. We we're in bondage to sin, but but now we're no longer slaves to sin. Paul is telling us we can actually, because of the power of His Spirit uh, living in us, we can choose to do right. And the way Paul elaborates, he says, "Now, if we've died with Christ, I'm still in." In Romans 6, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. By implication, we will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So as believers... We believe that sin and death no longer have any dominion over us. That's the hope of Easter. Uh, we can now consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And if I may share just the final paragraph there in that passage that Paul uh, cites, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, which implies we have a choice now, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. And I mean, I love that final reference to grace. So as believers, we, we are now under grace. We, we should present the members of our body as uh, instruments of righteousness. Uh, you know, my wife is currently working on a book on sanctification for a mentoring series for women. And, and uh, she and I both have written a forthcoming joint volume on life in the spirit and the uh, short studies uh, in biblical theology uh, published by Crosswood. So I'm very excited and we're very excited about this very question, how Christ's resurrection is vital for our new life in Christ and, and life in the spirit. So, so thanks so much for asking that question, because I think it helps me, it helps our listeners, I hope, to show how Easter and how the final days of Jesus are incredibly uh, relevant for the way uh, we as Christians are to live today. Yeah. Well, I certainly agree. And even hearing you describe it is refreshing for me as a pastor, as uh, somebody who runs a, a parachurch ministry to say that 
in the, in the mm-hmm. same fashion as Paul and the, the apostles and acts. And now even, you know, you and me here some tw- 2000 years later, uh, we are to herald the resurrection. And that's what this week yeah. is really all about. Um, and so mm-hmm. Dr. Gosberger, as usual now, um, as I said, the first uh, repeat guest on the show. So it was a great, great honor for that to be given to you because you have made a profound impact on my life through your work. And now I think for the listeners of the All Things All People podcast, you have become a familiar voice uh, that they can turn to for uh, biblical scholarship, but also uh, one with a ministerial heart and not just to puff us up with knowledge. And so thank you for yet again, blessing us with just even a little bit of your time. And I do pray that this year's Easter might be uh, the most blessing to you that any of them have been. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I, I appreciate you. Appreciate your ministry. Blessings on you. Thank you, sir.